0: 30 years ago, I survived a light aircraft crash, and sitting beside the wreckage of that plane, miraculously physically unhurt, I was forced to face my mortality, and life for me was never the same again. You're listening to Embracing Your Mortality, a podcast series exploring life, death, and consciousness with me, author Sue Brain. Since my brush with death, I've written a number of books about mortality and consciousness because I'm so fascinated by both subjects. And I also run death cafes online and speak out about what it means for all of us to find ways to accept our mortality so we can live more consciously for a better world. As part of my journey, I've interviewed a host of fascinating and inspiring guests for my blog, many of whom you're going to meet through this podcast. How can my gifts and abilities be given in service to the restoration of our world? That is the most breathtakingly beautiful gift you can give. Some work around death and dying.
1: We had one guy, the Course had sent him into an existential crisis. <laughs> it had never occurred to him before that he was going to die.
0: Others study consciousness and whatever comes next. It became respectable. Instead of wanting to go to the nut house, it became something you could actually talk about. You weren't crazy anymore. And then there are those who are learning how grief and loss are just part of the human condition. You can't do anything about the pain. You know, that's coming. Sometimes the angels come and they save you. I hope these conversations will soothe you as well as inspire you to embrace your mortality so you too can live more consciously for a better world. During his time covering some of the world's most harrowing conflicts as a BBC correspondent, my next guest, Alan Pearce, was put under death threats and was almost throttled to death by a Taliban soldier. Yet he says that during his time working in hostile environments, he often witnessed the worst and the best of humanity all in the same day and that gave him hope. Alan went on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder, And he talks about how this has also affected his perception of mortality and consciousness.
1: I was based in Southeast Asia in Bangkok. And uh, when when, when I moved there, it it was rather nice for journalists because they had a war on pretty much every one of their borders. So I could cover Burma. I could cover Cambodia. Cambodia I covered for years Absolutely, years. I initially started going in with the resistance from the Thai side after the uh, Khmer Rouge uh, were kicked out by the Vietnamese. I I based myself in Phnom Penh and I was there for a long time. Later, I edited the Phnom Penh Post for a time. Cambodia was just, I mean, my eye opener to to proper war, war reporting, really. It was like most, most wars, uh, 99% boredom, 10% activity. But I just fell in love with the country and I fell in love with the people. And uh, it, it was just magical. But when I left, when I stopped, I got actually quite sick, as one does as a journalist covering Southeast Asia and various other places. When I went back to the UK, I found myself doing a lot of night shifts at uh, World Service Bush House. Something was totally missing from my life. And it was basically not not covering wars, if that doesn't sound too dramatic. It became my reality to be in a war zone. And everything else seemed to lack any flavour. You come back to the UK, people will be talking about their new car or where they're going on holiday or whatever. And it all seems so pointless and so meaningless. What with being on night shifts, I was going a bit screwy. So I actually applied for the cardboard posting which was um, a good thing and also a terrible thing because I spent 10 months under Taliban siege in Kabul. It was beyond grisly. And um, my job largely was actually counting dead bodies um, and filing reports.
0: Traditionally, the journalist is the observer. Seeing people being so horrendous to each other, what did that do to you?
1: There's two to that there's the good and the bad. And I would see terrible, terrible things. Um, I mean, body parts... Uh, and, and people being viciously angry um and at the same time i would meet people who were just magnificent there were two aid workers they'd been there for, for a long time they were christian and but they weren't banging the drum in any way and they were working on cataracts meeting people like that just restores your faith in human nature it's two different worlds in one and uh, meeting people like that, it just restores your faith, which you've just lost that morning.
0: I know you had death threats put on you when you were in Afghanistan. And I just wanted to talk to you about that. What was that like for you to have a death threat hanging over you like that?
1: I had two. I had both sides in the Civil War. The strangest one was that the Taliban took over. They held um, their first press conference in the morning um, in the presidential palace, windows are blown out and all the rest of it, and uh, the Taliban, very strange, Like they had trouble with concepts like doorways, and getting jammed in doorways together, and they had trouble sitting on chairs, bizarrely, they would sit on the back of the chair with their feet on the seat and, and so on, and it just seemed sort of totally out of place within this. So they start their press conference, and the first thing they, they announce is that um, Afghanistan is now in an a and the second thing they announce is that the BBC correspondent Alan Pierce is being sentenced to death by Mullah Omar. And I'm sitting there, <laughs> thinking, "Okay, um, the presser ends, and no one comes for me."
0: Did it play on your mind?
1: No, it's just like one of those things. I mean, it was you're in such a nutty environment, so strange that. That didn't seem any stranger than anything else, to be honest. I mean, it may have troubled me a bit, but I think I soon got preoccupied with something else. And then we were crossing the front lines, which we used to do fairly regularly. Uh, it, normally, we'd be inside Kabul, crossing the front lines to go talk to the Taliban. Now we're in Taliban-controlled Kabul, and we're crossing the front lines to talk to the former Mujahideen who were running the show. Get to Get to a checkpoint... And you can just tell sometimes that things are not good. And the ta- the Taliban were jumpy, jumpy. And I said to my driver, let's put the car in reverse and get out of here. He panicked, put the car into first gear and knocked down the two Taliban guys standing in front of us who got up. And instead of spraying automatic fire through the windshield, which is what I expected. They started smashing the windscreen in. Then the door came open. They grabbed the cameraman's beta cam, dashed it to the ground, grabbed me. And then this Muller comes over and he's shouting, well, I found out later he's shouting, it's the BBC, kill them all. So they start looking around for some, some means to hang me, but there aren't any trees. So after a bit of kerfuffle, they decided to, th- to throttle me.
0: <laughs> what was happening to you when, when this was going on?
1: Well, I was getting whacked a bit. Um, I was pinned up against the side of the vehicle. When you're in these situations, you, everything's happening so fast. I guess, you know, I guess I thought I was dying. I, I got shot down in a helicopter in Cambodia once, and I had a, a long time uh, before we hit the ground to actually contemplate what was going on. It wasn't like a totally unique experience. I can't say I was all calm or whatever. And I certainly wasn't all panicky either. And I was just standing there being whacked a bit with, with AKs. And uh, one guy starts throttling me, hands on my throat. And it was rather like an episode of Star Trek with a Vulcan death grip. I just went black. Um, I didn't like choke or, or anything like that. I came to sometime later. I'd completely gone out. They didn't know what state I was in. Put me in the landy, and, and we drove off. And I came too. Came back, carried on. Filed a report about something I don't. Uh, I suppose. And then my days just carried
0: on as normal. Did war reporting change your relationship with yourself, or with the world, or with the human condition, or did you start to look at people very differently?
1: Yeah, I don't even know how to begin to answer that. I, I am who I am now. Because of all of that, specifically how I've changed, I don't know. I came out with post-traumatic stress disorder. I didn't know I had it. I didn't know what it was. I was horribly angry all the time. Little things would just set me off. Ridiculous things would set me off. I was drinking a lot. Having been in Kabul for so long, that you're not getting access to alcohol. So when I came out, I I seemed to make up for that. Odd things, for example, I might watch a movie and find myself getting all teary, which I wouldn't do ordinarily. It's, I, I honestly can't really explain that. I, I just, kindness and bravery. If I read an account of some kindness or bravery or I see a movie or a documentary, I can actually find if I'm not careful and I start speaking that I've got a heck of a lump in my throat and I actually best not talk because I'm going to cry. And I still get that. And we're talking 20 plus years after the event. It was a lot worse at the time. I've still got that. In terms of my PTSD, I never jumped at loud bangs or anything like that because I could actually identify a sound within a nanosecond, whether it was one likely to trouble me or not. So that sort of thing is never an issue.
0: Has it changed your relationship with death, would you say?
1: I have absolutely, and this is going to sound ridiculous, uh, no fear of death whatsoever. I feel like I've had so many ridiculous close calls. I've had Artillery shells land feet in front of me, and for some reason being entirely unscathed. I had an anti-aircraft round hit a truck, a moving truck right in front of my head, and the the shell land between my feet. So many things had happened like that, that I felt somehow... I felt in some cases that I died in these instances, and I just carried on in some kind of alternate life, some parallel universe. When the Taliban throttled me, and I went completely black, I wasn't entirely sure that I actually carried on with my existing life or whether I'd actually dropped into some parallel life of some kind, you know, many worlds theory or something, that somehow I just switched lanes. And this is a sensation that I actually never been able to shift.
0: You kind of feel like you're living inside you, but in a kind of parallel life.
1: I don't know as I am. I have the sensation sometimes that it is the case. I find it remarkable that I appear to have got through so many ridiculously close calls. Um, in Cambodia, was in a helicopter that was brought down by ground fire and I was in the doorway next to the gunner. We span sideways, so as I'm in the doorway, I'm looking completely at the ground and it's spinning like crazy and getting closer and closer. And it went on and on and on forever. And I can't say I actually felt scared as such. I may have done but Looking back on it, I don't feel like I did. It felt that, OK, so it's going to end like this. All right. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of sat there. No one in the helicopter seemed to be panicking. So the door gunner was you know, shouting to his mic and all the rest of it, swinging his gun around, nothing to shoot at. And it just went on. And we, we hit the ground quite hard. The pilot was brilliant brought us down without killing anyone. I could well have died. I could have died in that. I don't mean there was the option I could have died. I may have died in that for all I know. I can't say I did or I didn't. I'm left with this peculiar feeling that maybe I switched lanes somehow.
0: The podcast is called Embracing Your Mortality. And I'm just curious about what that could possibly mean to you, if anything. I
1: found... In recent years, a more spiritual way of looking at the world. But I'm totally non-aligned, a bit like the former Yugoslavia. I don't feel that I'm a Catholic or you know, any former Christian or, or anything. But I've become more and more spiritual. I'm researching a book at the moment into the uh, experiences of people inside comas. Not the actual medical care of looking after people in comas, but what goes on inside their heads. I've been speaking to people that have literally died, that have touched heaven, have returned, and I spoke yesterday to a wonderful hospital chaplain in Birmingham, Alabama. His faith, not necessarily in Christianity, but in that there is infinitely more to this, is rubbing off on me uh, on a daily basis. And this seems to now sort of gel the world with my own peculiar brushes with death. It just feels, I felt really comfortable with it. If I die, it's not going to be precisely as it was before I was born, a great blackness, that there is something that I will go on to. The feeling I have now, I wish I'd had when both of my parents had died, because that was a void. I would have felt a lot more comfortable with losing them. So, in that sense, it has brought me a complete sea change. On a bravado sense, I'm covering wars. So, you know, I'm a roughy, toughy journalist, and, you know, death doesn't bother me. Obviously, it does. But your brain has ways, mechanisms of dealing with that. It keeps you sane within a particularly insane environment. I'm just looking at it in a slightly different way. I'm detached. I'm not the one who's likely to stop a bullet, or I'm not likely to see people die today. But I'm actually talking to people who have died, to all intents and purposes, have come back, and have learned something remarkable from the experience. And the one thing, everyone who's had, these are not quite near-death experiences, but they're somehow like related. Everyone who's come back from it says, 100% categorically, I am no longer scared of death. It is a continuation of my existence on another plane. And... I have absolutely no trouble accepting that.
0: I mean, obviously, during my end-of-life experience research with Dr Peter Fennick, we talked to a lot of people about deathbed visions and things like that, and dying people living in different oralities. And it was very clear that vast majority of people had that sort of feeling of being home, and that this isn't home. And I just wondered what you felt about that.
1: There is this sensation that... In the back of my head, I kind of know that there is more to this than just, you know, we're meat machines, we live, we die. How do I know this? I have no evidence for this at all, but I'm gaining evidence with the research of this book because they cannot all be deluded. They cannot all be the subjects of hallucination the word hallucination comes up endlessly to describe the experiences of people within comas the definition of hallucination is to see something that is not there well yesterday for example I was talking to a hospital chaplain who himself was in a coma he could not possibly see what was going on in the room and yet he could read the monitors he said that was a hallucination but he's seeing something that was there so i can't actually see that myself as an hallucination when you look at out of body experiences which a few people i've spoken to so far have experienced they're up there on the ceiling virtually with 360 degree vision they're not actually you know seeing it from their position with their head on a pillow they're seeing it from another angle and they're seeing things that they couldn't possibly know i came across an account a few days ago of somebody who was being placed into a coma he was out for the count they took his dentures out One of the nurses put them in a drawer. When he came out of his coma, he asked for his dentures. People said don't know where they are. He said, ask that nurse there. She put them in a drawer. He could never possibly have seen
0: that. There are increasing accounts from all sorts of medical perspectives as well, and patients are now beginning to be listened to. And I find this very exciting because I do feel like the next step for humanity is to really address our fear of dying. And Books like yours will be helping people to do that.
1: I'm discovering that there's an awakening within the scientific and medical worlds. If you don't know where the mind is or what the mind is, and the same applies to consciousness, you can't really provide an answer that's conclusive at all. It's like saying before the microscope, you couldn't see certain things, but it didn't mean they didn't exist. So perhaps we haven't got the tools of the ability to see beyond what we've currently got here. And many, many doctors and, and scientists are now looking for, if I use the word spiritual, it colors it automatically in one direction. I'm thinking that spiritual is just a word we use for a different form of consciousness.
0: I use the word consciousness now rather than spirituality.
1: Suddenly by doing that, it takes this slightly loopy edge off the thing. I'm exploring in my book other levels, attainable levels of consciousness, either voluntarily or accidentally, like maybe people have a head injury, for example, and and they're getting the most incredible visions and and whatnot. So I'm looking at everything from, say, transcendental yoga uh, and what that does to people, right through to uh, the psychedelic experience of taking psilocybin mushrooms or LSD, for example. And there's a lot of work going now looking at psychedelics for helping people coping with their end-of-life experiences, for example. But I'm getting this overall sense that there is so much more. So much is is not understood, so little is understood of our existence here. People are seeking and have always sought other levels of consciousness. And when you look at the experience of people who've been taking a psychedelic, it so closely resembles so many of the near-death experiences that people have. And when people come out of some psychedelic experiences, particularly the ones that are steered medically, they say precisely the same thing about death, that I'm not scared of death
0: anymore. Mm. I think it's really interesting that native cultures and ancient cultures have always used some form of psychedelic herb to particularly the 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 shamans of the tribe to help them access other realms for information or whatever they need but it's recorded in virtually every single native culture and I guess we just got closed down to that and I certainly understand our native cultures in Great Britain before the Romans came particularly we also had that culture as well and whether it was the religious dogma that came and we were told that God was no longer part of who we were, but was this external force.
1: It got taken over by, by other people providing their own answers and explanations to what's going on. But when you look at different cultures over different times, they're largely dealing with very much the same thing. Their experiences are very much the same thing. I was reading about Native Americans, for example, and their views of the afterlife. They closely resemble what I've been reading of near-death experiences. One, one thing that the Christian missionaries, difficulty they had when they went to the New World was telling them about Christ and the Gospels and all the rest of it, and that the Indians were saying, yeah, okay, but th- these are just fables because we actually know what's happening on the other side. You know, You've got your views, fine, but ours are set in stone. We know because we've been there. And they've lost that, that that knocked out of them in the same way that I didn't grow up in a society where we're led to believe that my consciousness continues beyond my death.
0: Obviously, the whole world is in such chaos and change now. And it does seem to me that riding with this change is a. so many people now are thinking differently about religion, about spirituality, and also about death and dying, because death has been just shoved in our face. It's in our everyday language now, not necessarily very positively.
1: (laughs) It can be made positive. People choose to to explore, or other people who've done the exploration can share the message. Probably everybody listening has known someone who's died, a relative or a parent or what have you. Here we're having it on a daily basis, if not the actual death itself, the fear of death is all around us. It is making people seek other explanations. It's not happening across the board. People are experiencing grief and upset and and just closing down as a consequence. But at the same time, other people are looking further and further afield. I actually cannot tell you why I am writing a book about the experience of comas. I have absolutely no idea. It just came to me. I started looking it up. And I haven't stopped since. And every day I'm on some remarkable journey only because somehow a door opened for me. I don't know if it was opened by some other means or whether I opened it. But somehow I'm on this journey and it has completely, completely changed the way I feel about death in that I now know. I now know because I've spoken to people who've been there that there is more to Life is perhaps not even the word here. There is more to us, our consciousness, than we have been led to believe. And I think more and more people are seeking this in one form or another. Whether they're finding it yet, I don't know. Traditionally, people would go to, say, the the local church or mosque or, or, or whatever, but they're not always providing the right answers. They're providing the stuff that's written in the books, that they're an instruction manual, and they're not necessarily looking beyond this.
0: My perception now is that rather than it's a linear life that we're born and then we live and then we die, end of, I see us more as if we're just passing through this physical existence and the birth is one bookend and our death is the other bookend and, in you know, the sort of sandwich is the filling of life in between. And I just wondered what your take on it was.
1: Well, I'm also wondering why we have to pass through this physical existence when you talk to people who've had the psychedelic experience for example they're talking of a oneness with the universe that they understand trees they 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 can see the grass breathing and all the rest of it and they feel that they're going back into this great hole and it's just so beautiful so warm so welcoming so perfect if i started out that way what the heck am i doing here in this life you know okay good bits a lot of bad bits I would much happier just be floating around feeling joy and one with the universe than I ever would looking at my tax affairs or whatnot.
0: Don't you feel that that we've come here to experience love in physical form and that perhaps we take that back into the soup of consciousness and maybe we're co-creators in that sense? I don't know. I, I really don't know, but I think about it a lot. And w- what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, I don't know either. I've had in my mind for some time, probably always, that we are here on this plane to learn something. What it is we're learning, I don't know. Maybe the lesson's different for each of us. Perhaps some people have got to learn humility. Maybe some people have got to actually understand the meaning of physical love, to actually physically appreciate that. So I do feel, and I've always felt, I've never been able to put my finger on it, that I'm here to learn something. And I look at some people and I think, you're not learning anything. And you will just go through life, you know, grabbing what you can, taking what you can, giving very little back. Well, maybe they're going to have to bounce back again and do this once more until they actually pick up that lesson and then they can move on to another plane. It's a feeling. It's not even a theory. It's just a feeling I have.
0: You have seen death and you've, you've been so exposed to it. Where does that fit into all of this? You know, the people behaving so horrendously towards each other. How do you reconcile that with what you've just said?
1: Yeah, the expression, what goes around comes around. That comes to mind. If you have a life where you're just taking the whole time, you're taking advantage of other people, you're not really happy. You're not happy at all. By the time you've entered your life, you, you've achieved nothing, you've got nothing, and, and maybe you're going to have to go back into it lawn again. I don't know. Those people who, who take and don't give are wasting their opportunity here. I'm in my 60s now, I'm feeling that only in the last few years has any of this started to come together to make sense, that I've been on some remarkable, in some cases, crazy journey. I have reacted in different ways to it at different times, and here I am in the latter part of my life, and it's starting to all gel, like strands are all coming together, that it's making some kind of sense, that there really is, you might use the word spiritual, as you do use the word a different level of consciousness, which is how I'm seeing it, that there are different levels of consciousness. And we are here to learn, to know, to be part of something. And if you, you can't fully be part of something, unless you understand something.
0: Or accept there is something. or I mean, I know a lot of people who just believe that, you know, you die, that's your lot. When they think about death, that must be quite a scary place to be, I imagine. I personally really love the idea that I'm just passing through and that there is something to come. I don't know what it is.
1: It gives you hope because you know, here we are struggling with one thing after another. you know, Bureaucracy, money, problems, all the rest of it. Grief with, say, your many children or whatnot. There has to be more to it than this. And <laughs> it's, only, it's only that hope that lets me, you know, I get up in the morning, I start my day. And it's only with that hope now in mind, which I've only started to glean later in life, that allows me to go through a day and actually appreciate the good and the bad for what they might be. And I just know I'm on a quest. I feel like Christopher Columbus. He knows there's something over the horizon and he's heading towards it. That's
0: where I'm going. That was Alan Pierce, journalist and author of What Goes On Behind Closed Eyes, The Beautiful and Disturbing World of Coma Survivors. Links to all my guests can be found on my website, subrain.co.uk and that's subrain, B-R-A-Y-N-E.co.uk. Jasmine Wolf is my next guest. It was like he was just sleeping, so I had to kind of thank him for being in my life she courageously talks about coming to terms with the heartbreak caused by the sudden death of her husband and soulmate when he was only in his mid-40s and how she's rebuilt her life as a successful business coach he was the most extraordinary man i feel that he's very proud of what i did for him and for myself you've been listening to embracing your mortality and i look forward to you joining me again In the meantime, here's to all of us living more consciously for a better world. The Embracing Your Mortality podcast was researched and recorded by Sue Brain and produced and edited by the Podcast Den.